Hi, and welcome to Prevent This, a podcast of your choice, where we cover everything substance abuse related from prevention to treatment to recovery and everything in between. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of a doctor or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding mental health, addiction, or substance abuse. Hi, Ashley here from Your Choice. Welcome to Prevent This, a podcast of Your Choice, where Carlene Cardozi, Regional Administrator for Rosecrans, will discuss anxiety and depression in teens. The goal of this training is to help identify the warning signs of depression and anxiety. In today's society, our adolescents are dealing with a variety of stress that includes families, school, peers, social unrest, and even the pandemic. There is a link between stress, depression, and anxiety, and we understand that the brain functioning and development can be negatively impacted by these factors. The goal of this presentation or this podcast is to identify the warning signs, help teach coping skills to help adolescents deal with anxiety and depression, and if needed, make the appropriate referral for treatment. Carlene Cardozi is the Regional Administrator with Oversight of Rosecrans Services in Milwaukee, McHenry County, Des Plaines, and Chicago. She previously worked as a Clinical Director of Residential Services and has been with Rosecrans since 2008. She has worked at both the Adolescent and Adult Residential Substance Abuse Treatment Centers in Rockford. Welcome, Carlene. Hi, I'm Carlene. I am the regional president of Rosecrans Incorporated, and I am just going to do my best to pull the PowerPoint up here real quick um, and get started. All right, can Ashley, can everyone see that? No. Okay, great. <laughs> so make sure you go to the green screen share button. Okay. And then pick it from, there you go. Perfect. Put it in presentation mode. So slideshow, there you go. Okay. Perfect. There we go. So as I told Ashley, I uh, am a licensed clinical social worker. And even though we've been doing this for about nine months, I continue to struggle with technology. So uh, I apologize for that. Um, as I said, I'm Carlene Cardosi. I am the president, the regional president of Rosecrans Incorporated, and I wanted to just get started with some of the objectives that we're going to have today. So the first one is to understand what anxiety really is, the way it manifests itself, how it can be confusing to see it in our adolescence, the link to anxiety right now and just the way the world is, specifically with COVID. What is depression? How does the link between the brain and stress work with anxiety and depression? What does that symptom look like as well? And then as friends and family and school teachers and providers, what can we do to help our young people manage stress, depression, and anxiety symptoms? 
So the first question is, what does anxiety really feel like? The confusing part is that it can feel like so many different things. It can be considered normal or expected at those first days of school or a new job, the day of a presentation. It can also help us achieve goals because it can serve as a way to improve our functioning. So the example that I often give is I had set a goal to complete the Chicago Marathon. Um, and so that first day when you go to find the corral, my anxiety was incredibly high. So for those of you who have ever run a race, you know what some of the things I'm gonna say. The line for the porta potty is overwhelming. You wonder if you're gonna miss the start. You wonder if you're going to get a dirty one. You wonder what in the world's gonna happen if I have to go to the bathroom on the course. Ultimately, this anxiety to finish drove me to actually complete, to complete a bucket list um, item for me. It made me do it. It made me excel. My heart was racing. My adrenaline was flowing. I didn't want to let down myself or the multiple people that were there to watch me finish. And so that's an example of one anxiety can help us achieve our goals. The problem is, is it can be absolutely debilitating as well when it becomes a chronic condition. It can interfere with all of our life's functioning. It can hold us back from going to school, from new job opportunities and relationships. And that's why it can be so confusing when we talk about anxiety or when our kids talk about anxiety. Because at times we want them to feel a little bit of it. And then other times we wanna reduce that symptom. So in this part, I didn't know if I would be able to see you or not, and I had no idea you were gonna be able to see me. So I'm gonna ask you to do a small activity, which is a little bit weird via WebEx, but I'm gonna do it in my screen so that you can also see it. So I'm gonna ask that you hold up your right hand and you fold in your thumb so that you're kind of making a four. So what this is, is this is your brain. So if we look at this, this is your brain. This right here is your amygdala. And your amygdala is really set deep into the center of your brain. It's an almond-shaped um, mass that really controls all of our emotions. So when people say, where does anxiety actually come from? You can tell people it actually comes from your amygdala, not an answer that very many people are prepared for. So now if you roll over your hand, so it kind of looks like a fist, this is your brain. Uh, if we look at your wrist and sort of look at your forearm, this would be like your spinal cord. So what happens is this is your frontal cortex. So this is all of your reasoning, your good decision making is in the front of this sort of brain area. When your amygdala overreacts, which is what we're going to consider some of these symptoms when we talk about um, anxiety, when we talk about bipolar, when we talk about our inability to manage our emotions or our behaviors at times, what happens is, is that the amygdala, amygdala basically blows the top off of your brain. While your brain doesn't actually blow its top, what happens is it actually blocks the receptors where you can't use your reasoning skills. Um, and that's really important for us to realize is that the amygdala, which is in the center of the brain, blocks our ability to make good decisions, blocks our ability to, to think things out or to reason. And so even though we might know that the fear or the worry that we're feeling might seem absolutely unreasonable, 
because we don't have the ability to block it from our reasoning skills, you're gonna be more likely to believe it. Our kids are going to act on it. Um, as we know, adolescents sometimes suffer with good reasoning skills to begin with, and then if we block that, they even have less. The amygdala is important because it can keep us really safe. It warns us about danger. Um, you know, the example always is a fire. If there's a fire, you know, you know where to go. The idea of fight or flight comes from the amygdala, amygdala as well. Um, but it also has the ability to make a mountain out of a molehill. It has the ability to overreact and it has the ability to hold us back. So the question is, can the amygdala be trained to do something different? It absolutely can. It's interesting because it's kind of like a muscle. Uh, you know, if you work out, they always call it muscle memory. Uh, the amygdala is really similar. So when somebody is feeling anxiety, what we really want them to do is the opposite. And that sounds really hard as the provider, as a parent, as a teacher, as a friend, to try to get somebody to do the opposite or to face the, the fear or to consider that that worry might not be real. An example that uh, I often give is tornado. So imagine if as a kid, I grew up in a household where my mom was deathly afraid of tornadoes. So when tornado season came, we all knew. We saw her maybe overreact. We might've practiced tornado drills, how to run down the basement stairs and get under the stairs for safety. So any time as a kid, when that little, little warning would come across the screen, my amygdala would make a mole out of a mountain, I mean, make a mountain out of a molehill and tell me that I needed to be scared. When in reality, it might just be spring in Wisconsin or Illinois or wherever you are, and the chance of you know, a thunderstorm or severe uh, weather is likely, but it didn't have to be to that extreme. Um, we also know from this girl who told us this story, she went to college and ended up having some severe anxiety about storms in her college dorm because her amygdala really told her that she needed to be scared, that she needed to worry, that she needed to do something different to keep herself safe. Um, and so that is where actually anxiety comes from. A few facts and figures that I always want to share um, is that 40 million adults are affected by anxiety. Anxiety is actually highly treatable and yet only 36.9% receive treatment according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. And when we look at kids, one in three adolescents experience an anxiety disorder according to the National Institute of Health. Right now, there's a lot of studies going on about COVID and how that is disrupting our kids' lives and causing more symptoms of anxiety. As we know, lives are disrupted. Schedules really don't exist like how they used to. We've had de decreased interaction with our peers, more social isolation, an increase of stress and worry, both from our kids, their parents, their loved ones. Uh, mental health professionals are expecting a large rise in symptoms. The problem is right now that there's not a lot of literature or studies because we don't have the ability to go backwards and see where the baseline is. The only thing that we can do is start now and then make predictions into the future. A few um, facts is that in late June, there was a survey that was sent out by the CD, CDC and it reported that 40% of young adults, and so young adults, sometimes their age is always 
different. Um, this one was 18 to 24. Um, they reported an increase in mental health symptoms during COVID. 11% had said that they had considered suicide. 13% started using substances again. And I think the word again is really key. 31 of them, 31% were experiencing symptoms of depression and anxiety, and 36% of them were having a trauma response to the way in which the world was going right now. When I see the part that's in bold on the screen, it says that some of the people that suffer from anxiety could have their first episode as early as 11. So to hear these statistics from 18 to 24 makes me wonder how far down that age group um, or childhood age we have people feeling the exact same way. I know that before this, uh, Ashley had read one of the questions and it said, you know, how do you know the symptoms of some of these disorders? And it's hard. Um, if you read over the signs and symptoms of anxiety, some of them really look age appropriate, right? Some of them, you know, I'm a stepmom um, and I have a 16 year old who does have some anxiety. And if I was to read through some of these, this is actually her baseline. And for some people, it's their baseline no matter what with adolescents. Avoidance of situations. I don't know, she's not always dying to do things with us. Getting up for school before COVID even seemed like it was a little bit of a struggle for her. Uh, distress in social situations, she's quiet. Uh, when we go even to family functions, it's, you know, she wants to sit next to me or her dad. Um, irritability, I think that's just about any teenage girl if we wanna be 100% honest. Um, impatient and fatigue. My kids could sleep 12 hours a day if I would let them. So the question is, are these symptoms of anxiety disorder or is this their baseline? And so what I'm gonna encourage everyone to do that has children, works with children in the field, watches someone else's kids, start to keep track of what that baseline looks like. Do you see a change in somebody? And that's where we wanna start when we start to identify these symptoms and look and see when did they start? You know, our 16 year old, she's always been shy. That is not a new trait for her to not love social situations isn't new. Our 18 year old is a social butterfly and we couldn't keep her in the house if we wanted. So if we started to see some symptoms of her not wanting to go out, of her not being so lackadaisical or not really having a worry in the world, I would start to look at those symptoms and say, I wonder if she's starting to develop um, a disorder. I wonder if she's struggling more than what she has told us. I wonder if I should put this in the back of my mind and have a couple red flags to continue to monitor. The other thing that I often do when, when we're reading about things or doing any presentations is look at what is the actual definition. You know, I am somebody who enjoys quotes and definitions to fully understand what this, what does this mean? Um, and so for anxiety, it's that state of apprehension. The thought of being uneasy in the mind. We just, we're not, we're not able to calm. We're not able to not worry. Um, there could be fear by danger or misfortune. The interesting part to me is that it can be a threat or it can be real um, or it can be imagined. When we start to talk about OCD later in the presentation, that piece becomes really interesting when we talk about germs and COVID and how at one point many people told the adolescents that it was fake 
or imagined. And now with the onset of COVID, how it's become real and how some of those fears and worries actually have been reinforced because of the COVID situation that we have right now. So we're gonna look quickly at what is depression as well. So depression used to be, uh, it's actually called major depressive disorder. Um, it is a disorder that comes from the inside out. Um, and so it's all about our feelings. It's about how we perceive things. Um, it's about our thoughts. And some factors really play into depression. The first one is biochemistry. Um, this is really just a chemical imbalance, you know, whether you were born with it or if there was some traumatic event that took place, but ultimately you have a um, chemical imbalance. Genetics, most of us think that that also would be um, biochemistry, but it's really not. Um, personality as well, which we're going to talk a little bit more about when it comes down to the nature versus nurture scenario, because many of us might think that everything is either learned or everything is um, all genetic, but truthfully, it's an interesting mix in the middle. So signs of anxiety and depression, as we said, can be really hard to identify. Um, they can look like some of our everyday behaviors working with adolescents. Um, and we just really need to continue to pay attention to them, whether that be in a journal, whether that be asking our kids to journal their um, feelings. Some of us really like Likert scales where we can say one means that I am irritable, sad, no reason to get out of bed. And 10 means that I don't have a care in the world and help them start to rank them so that we have the ability to identify what their symptoms are. So there's a lot of different types of um, anxiety. And one of them is generalized anxiety disorder. Um, studies show that this anxiety disorder often starts with turmoil or trauma in the home. Um, and again, that's why sometimes the onset of this can be so young, depending on the home life that they grew up in. That does not mean that it's the only reason, but it is a large precursor for that. Uh, it feels like worry and tension, worry and tension about everyday events that an adolescent cannot control, but continues to feel it every single day. It can cause them difficulty in functioning. Um, and really it's that, that playing out of worst case scenario. I'm sure that many of us have been in those what if situations with adolescents. Well, what if this happens or what if this happens? Um, that's sort of where they live. They live and stay in that what if. And so when we talk about what we can do to help them, some of those goals are gonna be to get them out of that what if challenge those negative thoughts to what if something positive happened? What if you did this presentation and it was horribly successful? What if you got an A on the test? Um, those are the ways in which we start to challenge some of those thought patterns. Social anxiety continues to grow and is huge. It is the third most common mental health disorder with adolescents after depression and substance use. Often this looks like the fear of being humiliated. So it's the fear of joining a club or sport. It's not wanting to maybe eat or drink in public, not wanting to meet new people, fear of speaking in front of people. Um, CBT, which is a cognitive behavioral therapy, is the most effective treatment um, for social anxiety. Um, if we think back to the example of the amygdala that we sort of talked about before, and how we have to train it and try to do the opposite. 
Right now, COVID has made that really difficult. So if we know that the, you know, doing the opposite um, with social anxiety would be to go out. It would be being willing to eat lunch in the cafeteria with a friend or someone that you feel comfortable with. It would be, you know, continuing to go to your sport that you like. As again, I was talking about our 16-year-old. She is a black belt in Taekwondo. It is one place that she has felt comfortable. Um, and right now it's all on Zoom. Um, and so the social interaction that she was even comfortable having has been reduced. Um, so it's not as easy right now to try and help them do something different during this time. But know that this is a very real disorder. Um, it is one that sometimes can end in school refusals. And I know that if we work with kids, that becomes incredibly frustrating. Um, and we don't know what to do when that starts to take place. Um, but realize that that can be one of the symptoms of social anxiety. Phobias, again, this is one um, that has really spiked during our current situation. Um, one out of 10 adolescents have a diagnosable phobia, according to Boston's University of Anxiety and Related Disorders. Having a parent or a sibling um, with a phobia puts you more at risk for having it. Recently, they came out with a new diagnosis. Um, it's actually that first one. It's called specific phobia. Um, and it's the fear of something, which to me kind of sounds like the other ones, um, but they're in different categories. So right now, they're saying that the idea of having a phobia can be to anything. Um, according to studies, we have seen an increased amount of phobias related to COVID, related to germs. Um, and the, the hard part is, when they're having a phobia, is that it's reinforced. Um, right now, when we look at the news or media, regardless of, you know, your personal or political points of view on COVID, when we turn on the TV, we see it. Um, we see people very, very scared of it. We see people not scared of it. We hear of people dying of it. We hear people recovering from it. But these are the types of social media interactions that our kids have that can really feed into the concept of a phobia and how to get them to understand that some of this fear is realistic and some of the fear again is on the extreme side which could be considering debilitating to their life. As I had talked about, the interesting one um, right now is OCD. So for some of us, when we think of OCD, we might think of a weird quirk, right? Something strange that somebody might do, whether that be washing their hands, you know, not stepping on the cracks, taking the third, you know, item when they go shopping, they refuse to touch the first one. Um, and there's a whole array of obsessive compulsive disorder thoughts and actions that people can have. One to three percent of all teens have obsessive compulsive disorder. Seventy percent of them also have another disorder. So 70 percent will have a co-occurring issue with this. Forty percent of the kids who have OCD and get treatment will recover. Majority of people who get OCD, it comes on between the ages of 13 and 17, but it can actually start in childhood. So just for a good understanding of OCD, the obsessive part refers to the thoughts or urges that won't stop. Um, often the thoughts with adolescents are about sexual orientation. Um, the second most common one is germs. So again, I'm gonna use COVID as the example when we talk about this because it seems to be the most relevant right now. 
So what happens is these thoughts um, continue to be persistent. And again, the word is obsessive. And they feel like they have to do something to make the thought stop. The idea behind it is if I do that thing, the thought's gonna turn off, at least for a little bit. So if I wash my hands, it's gonna turn off while I'm washing my hands because I got rid of the germs. But then I have to touch the door handle to get back to my bedroom. I get back to my bedroom and all I can do is think about those thoughts. It just comes right back to me that I touch the doorknob and I have to go wash my hands again. And there's only so long that somebody has the ability to live with that thought before they give in to that compulsion. So according to experts, COVID has intensified all of these symptoms, which I think makes sense. Um, I was reading an article where they started to interview adolescents that have OCD. And it was interesting what some of their quotes were, so I thought that I would share them. One of them was, you guys told me I was crazy, but look, I was right. There was always something out there that you couldn't see. And so I thought that was really, um, I don't wanna say insightful, but it was insightful because their obsession was germs. Um, and people tried to help them realize that, you know, at this point it is an unhealthy fear. This is what we can do to reduce it. And now everything that they thought was out there has been reinforced that it has been. Another one was, um, look, everyone is now washing their hands. I've been doing it for years and have been told not to. So when I continued to read this article, it really talked about how balance is the key with anxiety, that anxiety can protect us. The OCD, honestly, some of those tendencies right now with COVID, right now with germs, the flu season, whatever we're gonna do with this, can protect us. There is a certain amount of anxiety that is, hey, have I washed my hands? Hey, you know, with regarding, you know, a tornado, do I know where to go in my college dorm if a tornado was hit to come? Um, hey, I do feel a little bit embarrassed about walking into a cafeteria and not knowing anybody. Uh, I feel uneasy about my mom packing my lunch. I'm not going to do that anymore. There's a certain amount of anxiety that makes sense for our kids. And we have to help them find that balance. And when it comes out of balance, that's when we have to step in um, and help them recognize that it is out of balance. The last one is panic attack. So I don't know how many of you work with teenage girls, um, but often when we would bring up a topic to them that they didn't like to hear, uh, they would tell me, I'm having a panic attack, please stop talking to me. That's not really what a panic attack looks like. Um, when I was working at our adolescent treatment facility, we did have somebody with a history of panic attacks. I have never ever seen anything like it. Uh, we ended up calling 911 because it did look like a heart attack. Um, she was gasping for air. She was grabbing her throat. It, it sounded like she could not breathe. She was unable to respond. Um, and she was truly having a panic attack. To understand what this disorder can look like, it can be absolutely sudden and unexpected. Um, it's when somebody's often not in danger and it isn't caused by the obvious fear. Two to 3% of the adolescents will develop this disorder and the biggest precursor, again, is family history. Um, so just as a quick reminder, if you work with teenagers and they're telling you, please stop talking to me or I'm gonna have a panic attack, that's actually not how that works. 
So the most predominant predictor of anxiety disorders in children is a history of anxiety disorders with both parents. Later on, we're gonna discuss the whole idea versus nature versus nurture, as this continues to be researched and it's actually unclear about which one came first. So the same thing we're gonna look at with depressive um, disorders. I'm gonna give the exact same feedback about it, making sure that we know what our kid's baseline is, making sure that we're looking to see if there has been any change. Um, as I said before, often these look like very similar, which is confusing because we think anxiety means, you know, worked up and adrenaline and depression often to us, it's kind of, we think of sadness from the movie Inside Out, but that's not necessarily what this will look like. As I said before, some of the similarities are because it's an internalizing disorder where our thoughts and feelings are our symptoms. And so if somebody is more prone to maybe being a quieter person, anxiety and depression could look like that. If somebody is a little bit more outgoing, um, that could look a little bit more like an acting out, but that's all gonna be based on how their thoughts and feelings are with regard to their symptoms. Oh, I don't know how we got to the beginning. Ashley, you might have to help me. Okay. I apologize. Oh, there we go. Um, I will not go back. I'll just talk about the one that we just hit before, the types of depression. So the first one was major depression. The National Institute of Mental Health reports that 3.2 million adolescents have had a major depressive episode between the ages of 12 and 17. That's 13.3%. Recently, they have realized that there is a higher population within the adolescents um, where this depressive, major depressive episode is up to 17%. And those are the adolescents currently who are reporting two or more races. Um, again, when I read that, it, it stuck with me for a little bit. When we look at all of the social unrest right now that is going on, and to think that our kids with two or more races are at a higher rate of major depressive disorder. Um, while you might know that, but to see it actually in print and to actually hear people reporting it was a little bit eye-opening to me. 60% of adolescents with this disorder do not get treatment, even though it is very treatable with talk therapy and medication. The next type of depression is bipolar. Um, this used to be called manic depressive disorder, it is not the same as the normal ups and downs of our adolescence. The mood changes are more extreme, they're unprovoked. It affects everything, their sleep, their energy levels, their ability to think. There is a higher rate in our adolescent females and family history and childhood trauma um, are very large contributors to this diagnosis. For many of us, we know that when a child survives a traumatic event, it can absolutely change their brain chemistry, and that is what the studies are showing with regards to bipolar. So here comes the question that I like the most, is where does anxiety come from? Is it nature versus nurture? So this debate involves to what extent are certain behaviors um, affected by behavior, and to what extent is it genetic? So I'm gonna use COVID, of course, because that is the example right now that's just everywhere. So for the nurture part, 
Nurture means the influence of any outside factors. So right now, we know some of the outside factors for COVID are the media, our family, our schools, maybe family finances, stress, isolation. So those are just a few. Now, if I go on the nature side, I'm going to say the parent has anxiety, has maybe a phobia with regards to germs. So where did the anxiety come from, from this child regarding COVID? There isn't a right or wrong answer. Most researchers are now interested in how nature and nurture intersect. So for most of us, it's going to depend on our own personal approach and the lens that we use when we look through things. So on the nature side, um, for us who might have had some clinical classes or work with kids, how many of us really think that it's biological? The kids are born this way. It's their genetics, it's their hormones. That, that is why they behave the way that they behave. On the extreme other side is the nurture. It's the behavioralist who says that, you know what, a kid comes to us as a clean slate. Genetics, hormones, you know, we're all kind of the same that way. Um, but they learn. They learn everything from their environment. Um, and so they're going to say all of this is learned behavior. And then there's this middle section of cognitive, where we believe that innately there's a mental structure that could be affected by biological factors, by genetics, by hormones. But we also believe that perception and memories are affected by the environment. When I read and explained it that way, it seemed to make perfect sense to me of how there isn't an answer. We're not sure. Um, it's kind of like separating out a spider web. What, what caused what? Um, what we do know is that nature and nurture definitely plays a role with anxiety and depression. We also know from the research that trauma impacts our kids in ways that we have no idea about grief and loss, their own thoughts, that suppressed emotion where they're not able to talk about how they feel, and then stress. So why don't we recognize it, right? If, if we know our kids or we work with our kids or we're experts in the field, how do we miss some of these things? Because some of them are age appropriate and we hope that they're gonna outgrow it. Or we say that's how they've always been. You know, my 16 year old, she's always been quiet. She's always been on the shy side. Is that social anxiety? Have I missed a couple of the warning signs or the red flags and I've just written it off as that's how she is? The question is, at what cost do we continue to turn a blind eye or not pay attention? And how does this affect our kids developmentally, socially, and then their own self-esteem? So, you know, why don't they tell us? Well, depending on the teen, they either want to fit in with their friend group or they want to be the exact opposite. If I look at any picture of our kids, they're almost wearing the exact same jeans. They're wearing almost the exact same shirt and every single one of them is wearing the new shoe, Hey Dudes. They don't want to be different. They want to look like each other. Teens also have this really weird way of wanting to be independent and thinking that they can handle it. They're invincible. They have all the answers. Uh, they, they really, at times, make it really sound like they really don't need us. They also think that if, if they say something, first of all, will they be believed? And second of all, will we overreact? Will we, will we be mad? 
Will we race them to the emergency room for a psych evaluation? Will we normalize the conversation? And then the final one is what if this is their normal and they don't even know that what they're feeling is different and that they can feel better? So how do we talk about it? So initially, you know, when you look at these ones, it sounds really easy, right? Like, okay, I can just talk about this conversation. The truth is you have to do it authentically yourself. You can't pretend, if you're the parent, don't pretend to be the therapist. If you're the therapist, please don't pretend to be the parent. We have to do it how we would normally have a conversation. Um, I am somebody who really does believe in CBT. I am a little bit more of a, a straightforward type of uh, person. So I was going to give a couple examples. You know, I will ask somebody, hey, do you mind if I ask you a question? Sometimes they say no. And then I tell them that really well, that really wasn't a question. I was just trying to break the ice. Um, I can ask them, you know, I've noticed something. Do you mind if I share it with you? Um, I have told our own kids, depending on, you know, what's going on. Hey, every Sunday you behave this way. What's going on? Uh, when I worked in the treatment facility, often we would see a huge spike of anxiety or depression on family visits. And so being able to bring it up to them on what you see. And I always would recognize or make the statement, you might not even notice, or I might be wrong, but this is what I'm seeing. First of all, it lets them know that you're watching. It lets them know that you're paying attention it lets them know that you're almost keeping track and not keeping track in a bad way, but keeping track that you're monitoring them to make sure that they're doing okay. But the key to any conversation with adolescents is to figure out how to do it authentically yourself because they see through when we put on an act. They, they wonder what's wrong with us and why are we behaving in a different way than what we've always uh, behaved with them. So what do you do? So we sort of talked about some of these symptoms. We've talked about what it could look like. And now the question is, what, you know, what can we do? So the first one, we want to help them recognize their own triggers. Is it family visits? Is it their math class? Is it their, you know, seeing their ex-boyfriend or girlfriend with that new person? How do we help them with their skills? Do they even know what coping skills are? Or is that just this weird word that we throw around, but nobody really knows what that means? And then how do we help families and support systems be educated on it, see the warning signs, and know where to reach out for help? So DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy. It's a really big word. Um, it's really a type of cognitive behavioral therapy. Some of the goals are to teach, you know, for me, the word is clients, but for some of you, it might be students, it might be your own kids, it might be your neighbor, how to live in the moment, develop healthy coping skills, manage stress, regulate their emotions, and improve relationships. So that is not simple, right? The goal is huge, um, but you start to do it by doing little bite-sized chunks. One of the favorite one that I like with adolescents when we are talking about depression or anxiety is that one that says two ideas can be true at the same time. I can feel super sad that my parents got depressed, I mean, got divorced. But I can also be really grateful that my home is not in turmoil anymore. With DBT, the goal is that you can have two different things at the same time. I can be anxious about going to school. 
I can also look forward to seeing my friends at school. And so helping them realize it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It really can be two conflicting ideas at the same time. I know that we don't have time to sort of cover all of the skills of DBT, but I did want to put this in the slides um, so that we are aware of what some of the skills are that you can look up yourself. Some of them are really easy skills to teach. Mindfulness, uh, emotional regulation, distress tolerance, and interpersonal effectiveness. We're going to go through a few, um, but again, I wanted to make sure that you had the list of things that you could look for. So practicing distress tolerance, um, really this means, how do you sit with being uncomfortable? How do you sit with anxiety? How do you sit um, with not liking how you're feeling at that moment and not acting out? How do I sit with it and accept that maybe this is where I am right now, but this isn't where I have to be for the rest of my life? So a couple of the ones that are easy to do, no matter who you are or where you're at, is the five senses. So for me, it would be name five things that you can see. So I see my wedding photo, I see a mug, I see a keyboard. And while it sounds so minor, truthfully, during the time that they're listing those things for you, they're not thinking about anything else. So it might be, yes, it's not going to solve their anxiety. It's not. It's not going to solve their depression. But what you're doing is you're starting to flex back on that amygdala. You're starting to flex back on that reasoning skill, turning off all of the other thoughts that are coming their way. It's the exact same with hearing. What do you hear? I have a dog outside my office door. I literally hear him snoring. Um, what can they touch? What can they taste? What can they smell? For taste and smell, um, those are always super fun when you work with kids with taste. We've done, you know, fireballs, and then you put in a piece of chocolate afterwards and how smooth the chocolate feels. Smell, I think all of us have had some form of aromatherapy. Um, and so how do we start to use those, again, as a way to get their brain to turn off some of the other stuff and be able to focus, again, for that 10 seconds, for that 10 minutes on something else. Um, another one that we use to distract people is called the accepts. And what it really is, obviously, it's an acronym. Um, and it tells us things that we can do to distract ourselves. We can do activities. So is there a coloring page? Can they walk the dog? Uh, is there a way for them to bake cookies? Or whatever that thing is for them that can distract them from the thought. Is there something that they can contribute to? And so what that really means is giving back. Is there something bigger than themselves that they can get involved with? Um, at our house, I have two dogs and a cat. They love the pets, but they have to contribute. And the pets give back love when, you know, you're the one who feeds and walks them all the time. So that's a, a way that we contribute. Compassion, um, emotions, pushing away. So the pushing away one is also interesting to me. It's, it's removing yourself from the situation that causes you pain. So if I know that watching this TV show or listening to all of the sad music um, makes me feel sad, then why am I doing it? I should do something different. Um, and then sensations goes back to some of the other ones that we were talking about in the previous slide. Uh, mindfulness. So I think it's a really big word right now, and I'm sure that we all have heard it. I have a Fitbit app on my phone. It now has actually added mindfulness activities to it. We can YouTube them. We can do all sorts of things for mindfulness. The question is, 
what makes you feel like you're staying in the moment might not be the same thing that's going to work for the person that you know that might be struggling or working with. So some of the, the ones that most of us have used are guided imagery. Um, and again, you can find them on YouTube channels, you can find them on phone apps, meditation, deep breathing, yoga, and then sort of creating a safe or soothing room for them. So deep breathing, if we tell someone to take a deep breath, what does that even mean? How do they even know what that looks like? Um, so when we were working with younger kids in our SAS program, or now Mobile Crisis Response, um, we would always say, smell the roses, blow out the candles, because that helps them understand what we're actually asking them to do. We're asking them to smell and then blow out the candles. Otherwise, do they even know what a deep breath is? Have we ever taught them, when we talk about coping skills, how to actually apply it? The other piece is to make sure that when we talk about mindfulness, that we let them do what they find mindful. I don't like guided imagery. Um, I'll be the first one to say it. I often find the person reading it or talking, I pick apart their voice. I don't wanna feel the waves rushing upon me. That is just not who I am when it comes to mindfulness. I am the person who would much rather go for a walk. I could hear the leaves crunch under my feet. I can feel the wind in my face. I can feel the sun. I might be able to hear the birds or where you live, construction, whatever that is. But to me, staying present in the moment has much more to do with outdoors than whether or not someone's asking me if I feel like I'm at the beach. And sometimes this is really hard when we're teaching mindfulness skills because we want to teach them the skill that works for us not necessarily the skill that works for them. On this slide, again, there's a couple more examples of what that can look like, depending again on that kid. I'm a horrible juggler and there's nothing else I can think about when I'm juggling. So I guess if you wanted to get someone's mind off of something, that would be a great one too. Um, the interpersonal effectiveness skill is how we start to feel connected. How do we start to tell people how we feel and how they can support us? Um, the give skill is one that is an easy one to teach to both parents and kids. Um, the first one is gentle, that we don't get to attack the person that we're having the conversation with. Um, it means sometimes I have to accept a no answer. It means I'm going to be gentle with the person I'm communicating with and gentle with myself when I'm communicating it. The I is for interested. I'm going to act like I care. Uh, if somebody comes to me to talk about something, you know, I, we all probably work a lot. I'm going to turn over my phone. I'm going to pay attention to what they're doing. I'm going to validate what they're feeling next. I'm going to, you know, not say I understand if I don't understand. Um, and then I'm going to also do it in an easy manner. I'm going to make it easy for them to hear. And on the reverse side, I'm going to make it easy for me to say. There is a lot of worksheets online about how to teach both adolescents and family members how to use some of these interpersonal effectiveness skills. The hard part is you have to teach both sets or the skill doesn't go over really well. The last little bit that we're going to talk about is cognitive behavioral. Um, the goal of CBT um, for both depression and anxiety is to identify and correct the negative thoughts and belief system. Ultimately, we're gonna believe that our thoughts and our emotions drive our behavior. Um, if I change the way that I think, I can probably change the way that I feel. 
Um, so CBT is a blend of cognitive and behavioral therapy. Um, the idea that negative actions or feelings are due to some of the thinking errors I have. So the interesting part about this type of therapy is that CBT alone is 50 to 75% effective for depressive symptoms. Medication and CBT for both depression and anxiety is the most effective treatment um, that we could do for our kids. So the hard part with this is that we're gonna challenge um, and we're gonna challenge in a nice, loving, but stern way so that they understand that that thought that they're thinking right now is probably not likely. It goes back into that what if cycle. We can play that what if game in cycle for months and never sort of get out of our own way. On this slide, there's a couple interesting or different examples that we could give. You know, I use one about the gym. What if I pass out at the gym. You know, kids don't want to go to gym class in high school. I never did. The thought of putting on my gym uniform was like petrifying to me. So, you know, I'm not going to do it. What if I pass out at the gym? What if I'm made fun of? What if I'm the biggest girl in the gym class? What if I run the slowest mile? Um, that would be me predicting the worst. Then you have to challenge it. Have you ever passed out before? Probably not. If you haven't, it's really unlikely. But if, you know, if they pass out, it will be terrible. How will I ever get over it? Everyone will be looking at me. Um, again, that's sort of blowing it out of proportion. So trying to say, okay, so if you did, I mean, you're gonna come back awake, right? The teacher's gonna get you. I bet you get out of gym tomorrow. So those are some of the ways in which we can start to challenge that thought pattern. The interesting part about CBT is that we can teach the kids how to challenge their own thoughts by just asking them some of the questions like, well, what's the worst that could happen? You know, sometimes you might have to really follow it a way long way down that foxhole to get them to sort of realize that what they're saying might be a little bit off. But once you start to teach people how to challenge their own thoughts or to recognize this is pretty unlikely, the more likely they're gonna be to start to reduce uh, those negative thought patterns. So what I would want people to take away from this is that anxiety and depression are real, but there is help out there for people. To be honest and open with the dialogue and questioning, also to monitor symptoms and to realize, you know what, treatment's gonna take time. This is not something that is quick to deal with. It takes awareness, it takes work on both parties, whether that be a parent, whether that be a clinician, whether that be school, it, it's going to be difficult and it's gonna take a new set of skills. So, you know, in closing, just a reminder, if you know someone who is struggling and in need of treatment, don't delay. Encourage them to get help, encourage them to seek support, and if you're interested in learning more about behavioral health options at Rosecrans, you can always go to rosecrans.org. And now I know that we have some questions. I saw them uh, popping up so I can answer a few of them. Um, one of the questions with a slideshow be made available after the presentation. Sure, I'm sure that I can work with Ashley to have that, to have that done. Um, one is, could you share how you'd identify the difference between baseline and potentially ongoing or untreated anxiety? Absolutely. Untreated is more likely to worsen. 
So whatever that is, whether that be if we really look at this as a medical model um, or we look at even ourselves, if something about us isn't working and we don't address it, it often gets worse. So if we're wondering if this is a baseline, start to track it. If the irritation gets worse, if the isolation gets worse, if their response seems to worsen, that's when I would notice the difference between baseline and ongoing or untreated anxiety. The other thing is to start to have an open and honest conversation about it. Ask them how they're feeling. Um, maybe give them some descriptions, uh, descriptions of anxiety. You know, the one thing I would say right now that's really great with social media, which there's not always a lot, is how many celebrities and music and athletes are coming forward with regards to mental health. Is there somebody out there that they identify with that that might be the, the opening of a conversation about have they always felt like this? Is this getting worse? Is this something that they've had before? Um, all right. Um, uh, one says, I understand the importance of distracting oneself from uncomfortable thoughts, but what if the thoughts are super overwhelming and when is it appropriate to actually deal with the thought and is it okay to cry it out? Absolutely. Um, I think those are all things that all of us have done. It's how long do you live in that down spot? I mean, it would be unrealistic to say it is unhealthy to cry. We all have cried. We have all, I mean, had an adult temper tantrum. And as a kid, a kid temper tantrum. How long do we stay in that spot? Our goal is that, yes, we're going to have these feelings. And yes, we have the right right now to feel anxiety and to feel depressed about where we are. And are we going to see our friends and family for Thanksgiving? And is school ever going to go back to normal? Those are all things that are normal. Um, again, it's how long do we let our young person stay in that spot? How do we validate it in a really healthy way? Um, and then how, how do we uh, help them move on? And sometimes the, the issues about what really happened, if they really have a trauma, they've been in a household that has been really dysfunctional, those are things that they should deal with with a therapist. Those are the issues, I don't know um, who asked the question, if it's a parent or a teacher or a therapist, but if it's a parent and your kid is seeking some therapy or you're wanting them to and there's actually, there's a big deal and we know that the anxiety or depression is a symptom, they absolutely should deal with it. But they need to deal with it in a safe spot when they have the skills to be able to deal with it. Because sometimes when we start to dig up that stuff, it gets real serious really quick. Ah, somebody said that they use bubbles to help students control their breathing. Would you suggest another activity um, that they can see when it occurs? I don't know how many of you have seen the breathing on a square or breathing um, worksheets. Um, part of CBTI, so at Rosecrans in our adolescent facility, we also uh, address CBT for insomnia. There is a lot of breathing activities that go with that. And so there is um, breathing activities where you breathe in and out and they make it shape like a star. So if I breathe in, I go up, down, there's circles, there's squares, there's really all sorts of really cool activities for deep breathing. Um, and the reason I always use deep breathing is because when Again, we tell people to take a deep breath, but like, okay, that didn't help me. Um, so we actually had learned that we have to discuss what deep breathing is. Um, the bubbles is a really great idea. I haven't done bubbles before, but now um, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, let's see here. 
go down a little bit. Um, what if it goes untreated into adulthood? Um, all of the st statistics show that if adolescents don't get treatment, it's going to go into adulthood. Um, it can manifest itself differently, but you know, similar to any disorders, whether that be substance abuse, anxiety, depression, they often worsen and they become more chronic. Um, you know, again, if we were if, you know, I'll use weight, if we're overweight and then we stay overweight for a really long time, it's harder to lose it. If I continue to live with my cognitive distortions and don't sort of flex that muscle back and learn new skills, it's going to get worse and it will absolutely um, go into adulthood. Um, I work with students. What if they don't know what the triggers are? How do we help them identify? Uh, I think that's a great question. What we're going to say is, first of all, can they identify when they feel anxious? So do they have any clue about when they feel that way? Can they say they feel that way on Tuesdays or around dinner time or when, do, and if, if they might not even know the word anxious. So it might be, when do you feel irritable? When does your stomach hurt you? Um, when does it look like you're tearful? Some of that might be us sort of leading the question so that they would know what they're feeling. And then we're gonna sort of do a backwards timeline with them. So if I know that their stomach hurts, I don't know, Tuesday mornings when they come into school, I'm gonna ask them, when do they think their stomach hurts? And then if they tell me every Tuesday, I'm gonna even go a little bit further and ask them, what did they eat for dinner on Monday night? So I think they're gonna do a backwards timeline with them so that you can start to maybe point out what the triggers are for them, depending on the age of the student. Sometimes it's our job to help put those pieces together. Wow, so much great information, especially as kids are going back to school. If you would like to watch this presentation and access Carlene's slides, please visit yourchoiceprevention.org backslash webinars. If you go to the bottom of the page, hit the subscribe button. Enter the code podcast at checkout and you will get the first month free. Thanks for listening.